Okay. Um, I'm going to get a throat lozenge because um, I'm going to need it. Let's jump back to last week. We'll do a lightning quick replay so that um, although God may seem to not make sense at some point where we're going with this, what his word says might, um, regardless of whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not. Um, I think you'd agree, I hope we can agree, that at one time, at least for everyone here, that life has kicked you in the head while wearing steel-toed boots. Can we agree on that? Life does that to you. We live in a fallen and broken world, and like some of you need to protect your face next time, okay? I'm, I'm just looking out there, I want, I want, I want to say that. Um, I say that in grace. And it's at those times of tremendous pain and anguish when we cry out in our hearts or with our lips, why? Why, God? Why have you allowed this to happen to me? Why is this happening to me? Why, why, Lord? It doesn't make sense. Where were you? Where are you? And, and here's the deepest tragedy of those times. It's not just the calamity itself. It's that if we camp out there in those questions without the comfort and the word and the truth and the presence of the Lord, if we camp out there, then the roots of bitterness and resentment and the perceived betrayal of our God against us can grow deep in our hearts and can harden them and that can create distance between us and Jesus at the very time at the very time that we need his presence and his healing and his grace and himself the most, the most. And some of you know the depth of of what I just said because you're here and and you can look back at a time and you're still holding that and and it's created that distance. And, And I want you, I want to plead with you. I want to plead with all of us because we've all brought our own stories here. I've shared with you some stories from my own life last week. But we've all brought our own story here that perhaps you've dealt with it. But if you're like me, if you're like most Christians, what we do is we bury it. And what do bury things do? They grow and they send out roots. And I want to ask you to go to that place. This is a very safe place to do a dangerous thing, which is bring that up to the surface and let God uncover it and let him touch it and let him heal it. Because the good news is it's time for healing. And, and for many of us, uh, we could take a big step in that this morning uh, by his grace, by his grace. Um, go to that painful place. Now, as we did last week, I want to clear something out up right from the get-go. As we look at times, and I don't want anybody to get the the wrong impression, as we look at times when it seems that God does not, that Jesus does not show up and show off and intervene and transform a circumstance or remove pain or eliminate struggle, when we look at those times, I don't want to in any way diminish the times when he does miraculously show up, cure, heal, comfort, transform, make a way where there seems to be no way. That is our God. 
And I don't want to discourage you in any way for praying fervently for your life, your marriage, your family, your future, that God would show up and he would show off. He would protect and empower and anoint and and endow and, and comfort. He will do that. But sometimes it says he works in strange and mysterious ways. Sometimes God doesn't seem to make sense to us. And that's where we are today. But next week, and I promise we're going to get to this next week, we're going to see one of those encounters that we've seen all through Acts where he does, there is no explanation except for the presence and the power of God why this thing transformed the way it did. And you will experience that in your lives. But unless we're spiritually honest with the scripture, with our own lives, that there are times when we're just mired in pain and struggle and we can't see through it. Unless we're honest with that, we're going to head into some big trouble. So last week we began looking at the following scripture. It's where we'll start this morning. It's Acts 12. We're going to pick it up in the first verse and go through uh, verse 5. Here it is. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, Peter, he put him in prison, delivering over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people to do, well, you know what. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Okay, what we did, okay, hope those seats are comfy. What we did last week is look at sometimes, most times, we zoom in on a scripture so that we can see exactly verse by verse, often word by word, what God is doing. What I asked us to do this, this time as we do this study is to zoom out to about 30,000 feet and see the big picture and ask and begin to answer, let him answer the big question. And here's the big question. Here's the big issue here. We have James and we have Peter, two apostles, and James is murdered. He is brutally slaughtered. Okay? There is no other way to say it. Raise your hand if you're between 20. Stand up. You're between 20 and 30. Stand up. Okay. Now, if any of these people was brutally murdered mercilessly, we would say that is a huge waste of human potential. That is a huge waste of a young life. More for some of you than others. But, okay, I love you all. It's true. Sit down. This is so that we can grasp what happened. This is about the age that, that James would have been at this time. Brutally slaughtered. What happens to Peter? Also an apostle. He gets arrested. He's thrown in prison. And as we see next week, a glorious angel prison break. It is miraculous. It is inspiring. It is the stuff we write children's books about. But the flip side is something that is also part of our faith. That James was brutally slaughtered. 
And one of the easiest things to do is put God on a box and, and say, James must have had it coming. Scripturally, we don't have a basis for that, but it must have been the case. James was slipping a little bit. James, had, it was a pretty day, and he skipped church to go to Hartman's and ride his, his dirt bike or whatever. And Jesus said, oh, James, I hope that was a good trip because you're going to take it in the shorts this week. <laughs> now, Jesus doesn't really talk like that, and he doesn't wiggle his hips when he speaks. <laughs> but that's also not what happened. Peter, James, and John were special among the apostles. Those three were, were enabled to be with Jairus when, when Jesus, when he raised his daughter from the dead. Those three were at the Mount of Transfiguration, as we looked at last week. Those three were asked to come closer as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were his posse. They were as in as in could be. James and Jesus were like this. And he was brutally murdered. And Peter... And Jesus were like this. And Peter was miraculously rescued. And so last week what we did is look at the utter foolishness of, of some within the Christian faith um, who are deep into the prosperity garbage, I, I mean gospel, which um, basically says that God doesn't make sense and that's your problem, Okay. And because bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things happen to people who don't have enough faith. Bad things happen to people whose God is not big enough. Bad things happen to people who are living wrong. And what I want to say is that it's not true. It is not true that if we followed closer to Jesus, we would be immune from all tragedy and suffering. And I say that because the gospel says that, because the scripture says that, because our lives say that. And, and the guilt that you're carrying around for the stuff in your life and the heartbreak because well-intentioned Christians have, have visited and said, well, if you had more faith, you wouldn't be going through this divorce. If you had this faith, you wouldn't be carrying around cancer in your body. If you had this faith, your child wouldn't have died. If you had this faith, you would not have lost your job. If you had this faith, you wouldn't be at this funeral. The Bible says differently. The Bible says differently. And the real tragedy of, of, of believing that, we'll move on, but I, I want you to see this. There is a real tragedy for believing that. Okay? You now, you can fill a stadium by saying your life is going to be a cakewalk with Jesus. But there is a tragedy to believing that. There are two. And I want to point them out to you so you don't experience it. First, it totally requires that you ignore huge portions of the Scripture. Now, there are hundreds of examples. I'll give you just three. Okay, in 1 Kings, we have the story of Elijah. Elijah's faith moves God to totally school the prophets of Baal. He reveals their idol to be an absolute joke. Not unlike the American idol, Tim, with the bangs, and, and just, just a false idol. And then, right after that huge public victory, where God shows off, and Elijah is, is, is built and affirmed in his faith, Queen Jezebel goes after him, and he runs under a broom tree, and he begs God to take his life, snuff out his life. He goes through that. 
faithful Elijah. Okay, we have to ignore David, the man after God's own heart. And, 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 and many, many of the Psalms, I just want to look at one, Psalm 69, verses 1 through 3. Here's David, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. He is standing in rough waters, feeling overwhelmed. He is standing on his tiptoes, trying to keep from, from drowning. And some of you know that feeling. And how does it turn out? I sink deeper into the mire. So his feet, although he's trying to strain and keep his nose and his mouth above the water, I sink deep in the mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. He is now over his head. He is now over his head, gasping for breath, swallowing salt water. And some of you know what that feels like. I am weary with my crying out. He has been praying about this for a long time. And his voice is hoarse and his spirit is weary. And he's been calling out to God and he doesn't need Zoloft. He needs a miracle. You know what I'm saying? And he can't see yet where it's coming from. But he's going through this and he's remaining faithful. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And he will wait and God will show up. And God will show up. He's not late. He's not unmerciful. As we'll see, he's not removed from you. I'm going to look at one more. And like I said, there are hundreds. It forces us to ignore Hebrews 11. Now Hebrews 11 uh, as many of you know, those of you who spend time in the Bible, this is the Hall of Fame of Faith. Now, after this, picking up in verse 32, here it is. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. This is glorious stuff. Glory. This is what we make those little fabric um, children's books about, and we read them to our kids before they go to sleep, because these are the works of our mighty God, right? But because these are the only stories that we read them, and they are the only stories that we repeat to each other, and they are the only stories that were read to us, we grow up into adults thinking that this is the way that life with God is always going to be. And when it's not, there's problems. Okay, now without warning, in the middle of verse 35, I want to see this. We make a screeching U-turn. And we're still talking about the all-stars of the faith. And here it is. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Nobody's writing bedtime stories about that. Nobody's writing bedtime stories about that. You're not going to go into the Christian bookstore and find a laminated bookmark with those verses and a picture of a lighthouse. You can't buy a Thomas Kincaid painting with those verses underneath it. You know what I'm saying? Nobody's embroidering that on a blanket or worse yet, a denim jumper or a Christian snuggie. I guarantee you, 
There is nobody who has ever, what, what, do, you, what do you do? What do you, what do you call scrapbooked? The verse 37 there. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, with little curly cues and stuff like that. But you have a story in your heart, and you know this is true. You know this is true. And it continues. And all these things, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not recede receive what God had promised. Since God had provided something better for us. I want you to say that underlying passage with me. For God had provided something better for us. And that's you. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Not only is the prosperity gospel wrong because it ignores a huge amount of scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But if you believe it, if you get deep into it, not only are you ignoring the word of God as you try to follow God, but when tragedy and suffering do crash in on you, it can cause your faith to absolutely disintegrate and find a bitterness to God that you may never recover from. There are tons of people who are not in church, who are not on their knees, who are not walking with Jesus because what they were promised was not what they got. And so at this church, we believe in teaching the scripture in its truth, Jesus in all of scripture, and spiritual reality, which is following him is sometimes the most painful thing. But in that, there is coming a glorious day. And until that glorious day, there is untold hope and untold peace and untold comfort and might I even say untold joy in the midst of the indescribable pain. That is what is promised. That's what you can stand on. And we're gonna look at that. We are. Don't distance yourself from Jesus at the time when you need him the most. Okay, we've got time. Guys, um, uh, ladies, you can take a little time out. Don't, don't doze because there's more for you. But I hear a lot of men we're about building up men in this church as well as women and youth. But guys, I want to talk to you about whining about how hard life is. Because whether you're married or not, whether you're a father or not, people are looking to you. And the Bible, God calls you to be the leader of your friendships the leader of your homes, the leader of your churches, the leader in your community. I'm not downgrading women at all. You have a huge role, huge role. It's just different. But men, we spend a lot of time, we spend a lot of time talking about how difficult life is. And I want to just take a minute to yell at you. Um, sometimes God doesn't make sense. And we all have to lead in faith and humility and show our wives and show our children and show our friends and show our community how to cling to Jesus when he is all that you have because he is all that you have and that he is enough in that moment. Some of you, it's time for us to put on our big boy pants and realize that we're living in a battleground, not a playground, and there are going to be casualties. And Jesus is enough for those times. And he has to be enough for you and for me. 
Our families need that. Our children need that. Our communities need that. The gospel going forth needs that. Stand strong in the faith, the weakness of your heart, and the strength of the cross. Jesus wants us to bear up underneath. And if we spend our lives trying to avoid pain, trying to avoid inconvenience, trying to avoid sacrifice, trying to avoid suffering, we can do a lot of things, but following Jesus Christ is not one of them because he said himself in Matthew 6, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That means that we jettison our quest for comfort. We jettison our quest for prosperity. We jettison our quest for the comfortable life. What does he say? Deny himself, take up his cross, the symbol, the instrument of your own self-death and his life. Pick it up and walk with me and follow me. And guess where I'm going? I'm going to the cross. It's going to count. It's going to cost everything that you and I are. And we should willingly die to who we are because only in that can we receive all that he is for all that he created us to be. The narrow road is not the easy road. It is the blessed road. It is the loved road. It is the reconciled road. It is the forgiven road. It is the road of life abundant and free and everlasting. It is not easy. And anybody who tells you it is, is lying. And they're hurting your heart. And they're contrary to the word of God. In America, the men pray, remove this suffering. Don't allow me to go through this. In persecuted countries, where following Jesus Christ and believing the gospel will get you tortured and killed. This is what the men pray. Lord, make our backs stronger and make our spirits stronger that we might stand up under the burden as you did for your glory. Amen. Amen, we gotta change our prayers. We gotta change our hearts. It's a battleground, not a playground. There's a lot of joy to be had. There's a lot of blessing to be had. But as we advance his kingdom, there are gonna be casualties. And if we shy away from them, we shy away from Jesus. Okay? Jesus himself said this. He makes an awesome promise with a wake-up call of splashing cold water in our face at the same time. He's great about that. John 16, 33. Here it is. I have said these things, Jesus said to you, that in me you may have peace. Okay, there's everlasting peace. There's peace that surpasses understanding. There's stupid peace. You have joy. You have peace. You have rest in the midst of circumstances where you should have anything but that you may have peace in me. Now, here's the wake-up call. Here's a splash of cold water. In the world, you what? Will. Not might. Not could if you play your cards wrong. You will have tribulation. You're living in a battleground. But take heart. Let your heart be strengthened and lifted up and encouraged and filled with joy and filled with faith. Why? Because I have overcome the world. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. In me, you're going to have peace and overcoming. In me, you can overcome what you cannot overcome. In me, you can endure what you cannot endure. In me, you can walk through what you cannot walk through. And only in me can you find peace and joy and love and grace in the midst of circumstances that would tell you that I 
I don't make sense, that I've abandoned you, that I don't love you, that I don't care, or I'm not powerful. In me, you will have peace. Okay. We're going to look at how other faiths deal with this question of the presence of suffering and evil. Now, when I say other faiths, I'm not just talking about people who have completely different belief systems. These are also things that Christians like to glom on to the gospel. Jesus and this. Jesus and that. So, so some of us are carrying around these belief systems and may not even know it. Um, so some people believe in karma, the Hindu belief that sort of replaces faith with human performance. And basically, it works on the principle of the boomerang. That you throw out something into the universe and it's hurled back at you and hits you in the back of the head. So whatever you put out, if you put out good energy and good works, you're going to receive good in return. If you put out bad energy or bad works, you're going to hit in the back of the head a lot with bad stuff. That's, that's karma. And I would say, really? Really? Have you ever read a newspaper? Have you ever left the house? Have you ever watched the hills? Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Have you ever been to Vegas? Really? Some Christians, without knowing it, are really deists. Deists. Deist is a, deism is a belief that's popular uh, with those who were involved in the Masonic Lodge. And basically, that is the God or the supreme architect, as they're fond of calling him, uh, created everything and basically became like an eight-year-old child at 4.45 on Christmas afternoon, bored with all the toys, right? Grew bored. So God winded up the world like a top, and now He's kind of bored with it, so he's standing away. He does not intervene. He, he does not do anything like that. He does not break into our world, change our circumstances, doesn't do anything, doesn't do anything like that. Um, he's not going to alter the natural course of our lives. God is watching us from a distance, and because I'm merciful, I will spare you my bit Midler impersonation. Um, this belief of deism essentially eliminates the Holy Spirit from the Trinity, and it explains away those times when there is no explanation other than Jesus showed up and showed off as only God could do. That's deism. God is bored and removed. The atheist, um, and I'm reading a great book on the Christian atheist, and I want to share that with you in the future, but uh, the atheist, uh, as one pastor says, says there is no God, and by the way, I hate him. The atheist, the atheist says that the existence of suffering and injustice proves that God does not exist. But there's a problem if we check under the hood of that logic, of that belief system. And atheism is a faith. It is a, it's a belief system. And if we check under the hood, what we see is that the atheist says that uh, they have this internal moral compass that says that should not be. Suffering in the world should not be. Without asking the question where they got that compass and why they think they know that that's right and something else is wrong. That that just came innately because they claim, the atheist claims, that everything 
we are, everything we become is from godless evolution. And though I got a C minus in science, I do know this, that the core of godless evolution is this. It is natural selection, right? Survival of the fittest, the, the strong devouring the weak. And as long as that's in the animal kingdom, we think that's cool because we get to watch Discovery Channel things like Shark Week. And we like that. But when that happens in the human realm, the strong devouring the weak, the the powerful oppressing the poor, creating suffering, it's no longer okay. It's no longer okay. That's not the way things ought to be. Although that is the inevitable injustice that is inherent in godless evolution. So it's not the thinking man's faith that it's all cracked up to be. Now, other people construct their own God by saying things like, I just can't believe in a God. How many times have you heard this? How many times have you said this? I just can't believe in a Jesus who lets babies die. I just can't believe in a Jesus who allows people to die of starvation and natural disasters. I just can't believe in a Jesus who made McDonald's french fries bad for you. (laughs) Just checking to see if you're with me. And so they create, they either do one of two things. They either reject Jesus wholesale or they create a fictional Jesus who is more to their liking despite the fact that no such Jesus exists. I can't believe in a Jesus who leads us to create an idol called Jesus who is a God of our own making. So what does God's word say? That's other belief systems. What does God's word say about the existence of suffering? It says a lot. It says a lot. Let's look. Uh, Isaiah 51.7. There's a lot of reasons. Isaiah 57.1, rather. 57.1. God's word says this. Very interesting. Take a look. The righteous man, the guy that nothing is supposed to happen to that's bad, he perishes, dies young, and no one lays it to heart. People don't get it, Okay? Devout men are taken away. They're dead. And nobody understands. For the righteous man is taken away from what? From calamity. That maybe God, in all of his wisdom, in all of his foreknowledge, in all of his knows that this person in the future will receive or cause a tremendous amount of pain, a tremendous amount of suffering, and delivers him or delivers her from that. Rather than have them go on, he he performs the ultimate healing. He delivers that person from future calamity. Maybe he knows that this person is growing up to be an Oakland Raiders fan. Why would he leave them on the earth? So God in his mercy sometimes causes or allows pain. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul has what is called the thorn in the flesh. Okay, that's some sort of chronic pain. Some say it's an eye ailment, others others speculate otherwise. But we know from Scripture that Paul has this chronic pain. If you live with pain day in and day out, you can relate to Paul. Okay, now it says that he asked God to take it away. And God has allowed 
he says God has allowed him to keep it from being conceited and protect him from pride, which is the mother of all sins and the sin that caused Satan to be Satan. So he's protecting him from that, the gospel says. And, and Paul pleads with God three times, take it away, take it away, take it away. What does Jesus say? No, 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 no. Oh, mama mia, mama mia, no, no. He says no. That's something else. We'll get to that. Maybe never. Um, here's what I want to say. Here's what the gospel is saying to us. Is that there's a many reasons here in that space. He says, I'm protecting you from conceit. I'm protecting you from pride. My grace is enough and my power is made perfect in your weakness. So several reasons why God had let this suffering come upon Paul, stay upon Paul to keep him from being prideful because when life gets good, guess what? We forget God. When life gets good, we don't sense the need for him and we grow distant from him. He protects him from pride from the great way he's using Paul with this reminder that you're still fleshly and I'm working in you, don't get conceited, but also experience my grace, lean on my grace, press into my grace, and receive my perfect power. Maybe the struggle in your life is so that you don't get prideful, so that you don't get conceited, so that you can receive his grace, so that you can experience his perfect power within you. James 1, 2 through 3, this is great. Maybe God allows our suffering sometimes to make us strong. Count it all joy, my brothers. Experience joy when you meet trials of various kinds, of every kind. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Why can't God allow us to, to just have a cakewalk of a, of a following of Jesus because when times get good, we forget about God. And this is, this is something that is somewhat unique to this country because uh, a pastor of a, of a third world persecuted church said this, many American Christians worry about how they would stand up under persecution. And I have found that 95% of believers in Jesus do very well standing and staying faithful when faced with persecution. Where 95% of believers fall away is when they're faced with prosperity. Maybe God wants you home more than he wants you to have a big home. Maybe God wants us all together forever than here for 90 plus years on earth. Maybe God wants to show its grace, keep us strong. This is deep, 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Look at this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it, when it comes upon you. Believer, don't be surprised to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Oh, my preacher said it was supposed to be an easy life. He lied. But rejoice, experience joy, insofar as you share in 
Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you and I have the opportunity to share in Christ's sufferings, to press in and know him as we would not know him if this tragedy had not come along, are we willing to do that? This is a bigger question than you may think. It's the very question of idolatry. Quincy, stand up. She's going far away. She's going on a trip next week. My fondest prayer for her is often that she would be protected, that she would come home to us safe. And I would say that's a good prayer, but it's not good enough. I have to love Jesus and trust Jesus so much that my prized possession, who is not mine anyway, my daughter, that I'm willing for tragedy and suffering to possibly befall her if through that she might know Jesus, participate in his suffering, and know him more deeply, and that her mother and I, though our hearts would be broken and shattered, would know Jesus deeply. Am I willing to put her in his hands no matter what? Or am I only willing to follow him if he makes her teeth straight, her husband not abusive, and her life pain-free? This is the essence. We can very subtly value Jesus and his protection more than we value him and his glory and what he wants to do. The true believer in Christ moves farther than I am currently, than maybe many of us are, which says, if you are in me, and as long as you are on the front throne, bring it. Bring it. Because you have promised to fill my pain with your presence. And this story of my life is not about me. It's not about Sheree or Quincy or Tommy or my own success, ease, prosperity, health. It's about him. When it becomes about him, then everything that he promises becomes about me too. Press in no matter what. And don't make an idol of God's hand when he's calling you to his heart. Okay? Don't fall away when it gets tough. He's given you his word. He's given you his Holy Spirit. He's given us each other to walk through this often joyful, often wonderful, occasionally excruciating road. And with him and with each other, we can do that. And we ask God, where are you when I was crying? Where were you when I was shattered? Where were you? He was with you and he was crying. You doubt it? Look at the story of Lazarus. 
he goes, this is one other, my last one, John 11, three through four. This is very profound stuff. This is not candy. 11.3, Jesus and Lazarus are buddies, right? So Lazarus has some sisters. He's very sick. So the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill, which I think is a little manipulative, a little passive aggressive on the, on the sisters' part, right? They're saying, Jesus, remember your friend. He's suffering. He's dying. Where are you? Right? We can relate. But Jesus heard and he said, and he stayed, right? He was intentionally late by their standards. This illness does not lead to death, speaking of what he's about to do. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God himself, Jesus, might be glorified through it. Sometimes he allows hardship, sometimes he allows suffering, so that when he intervenes and does what only he can do, he is glorified and magnified in your heart, in your life, in the church, in the community. He is lifted up as the King of kings and Lord of lords, God over sickness, death, evil, Satan, suffering, tragedy. Sometimes he does that. So they meet him. He goes out there, um, and, and they meet him there, and, and, and the second sister says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews are weeping who had come with her also. They're crying, and he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he says, where have you laid him? And although Jesus knows, he knows exactly what he's going to do. He's going to go into this situation. He's going to take a guy who is dead four days, Four days, and they say, he stinketh. You know, <laughs> read it. It's really good. He's rotting. This is not something where you order the crash car to clear, and he comes back. Four days. He knows he's going to go raise him from the dead. He knows this story ends happily, ends joyfully. He's going to start a party like that city has never experienced, like those people have never imagined, and yet, although he knows what he's about to do, he walks with the people who are crying and mourning because he knows their pain. And what does he do? He weeps with them, even though he knows how it's going to end. Because the grief of his people is the grief of their God. We have a Jesus who enters into our suffering and is there and weeps with us. And one day, that glorious day that we sang about, he is not only going to enter into our crying, he is going to wipe it away. There is a day coming when the kingdom is fully realized and there is no pain and there is no suffering and there is no cancer and there is no divorce and there is no sadness and he wipes every tear away. And until then, he enters into it and replaces our pain with his presence. And he counts on us to wipe each other's tears away, to enter into each other's suffering. Jesus is destroying suffering through his own suffering. And as we follow him, he will use us as agents of that. This is a hard truth 
that may create seats. But we're not going to exchange the truth for a popular message. It's a glorious, glorious truth. He is destroying suffering through his own suffering. John Stott wrote this. We'll close in a moment. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, writes this. If we ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue, and we look at the cross of Jesus, we still do not know fully what the answer is. However, we do know what the answer is not. It cannot be that Jesus doesn't love us. It cannot be that he is indifferent to or detached from our condition. Jesus takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. So if we embrace the Christian teaching that Jesus is God and that he went to the cross, then we have deep consolation and strength to face the brutal realities of life on earth through him. No other religion offers that. The God who has suffered for you, who suffers within you, who suffers through you to put an end to suffering. And in that, offers his peace, his joy, his strength, his comfort. That's Jesus. So maybe part of the solution is not only to find the answers to the question, why does God allow suffering to exist, but to ask different questions as well. Like these, can I dare believe in a Jesus who promises to fill my pain with his presence? Can I dare believe in a Jesus who really loves me when all I feel is pain? Or as John Acuff wrote, does God have the right to crack the vessel if breaking it is the fastest way to share with the world what he has poured into it? Have I made an idol of my safety or the safety of my children or those I love and valued that above Jesus? Can I believe that Jesus knows my suffering, died for it, enters into it, and will one day redeem it and make it beautiful? Can I look into his eyes and cling to his hand in the midst of inexpressible pain and know that he is all I need? As we struggle to find answers, will we search until we find Jesus more deeply? Because he is the answer. Jesus, Jesus is ending suffering through his own suffering. Maybe we shouldn't just ask, how can God allow suffering and still be loving and powerful? And maybe we also need to ask, how can God's people allow suffering when he has called us to not only experience his life and comfort and peace and hope and healing, but to be agents of it? until this city is transformed for him, until this college is transformed for him. And that's just the beginning because he's talking about the whole world. Here am I. Send me. 
hope that's your hope that's your heart to not only experience the hope of the gospel but to be an agent of it because he's out there with those who are hurting if that's you and others even and especially those who are far from him because he wants them home that's our call that's his church let's pray